Hey, hi there. You've reached the Acton Studios. This is the home of Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss, uh, your host. Um, I'm sorry I can't come to the microphone at the moment. Pretty much everyone here at Acton is across town right now helping out at Acton University, our, um, our huge annual conference over at DeVos Place Convention Center. So while we're all busy with that, I'd invite you to stay on the line and check out an interview I conducted a little while back with theologian Wayne Grudem and economist Barry Asmus on the book they wrote together called The Poverty of Nations, A Solution. They were in town as part of the Acton Lecture Series and were gracious enough to sit down with me and share some of their thoughts on the problems of poverty in the developing world, and, and I think you'll find them quite illuminating. So uh, thanks again for calling, and hang on for that interview. Well, the Acton Lecture Series continues uh, here at the Acton Building in the Mark Murray Auditorium, and we have had a wealth of great speakers come through this year uh, already, and it's going to continue today here at the Acton Building because we have a pair of speakers who are going to talk to us about their latest book, and I want to introduce them right now. They're right across the table from me. We'll start off with Dr. Barry Asmus, who is uh, an economist of note. He is a senior economist with the National Center for Policy Analysis, uh, written oh goodness, what, nine books now? Um, named by, I liked this in your bio, named by USA Today as one of the five most requested speakers in the United States. Uh, but you've, uh, you've uh, spoken all over the world. You've uh, testified before Congress. You're a, a well-known economist, and uh, we want to thank you for, for being here today, Dr. Asmus. Well, I've read so much and know quite a lot about the Acton Institute, so to actually come to Grand Rapids and be here today is just an absolute wonderful experience. Well, the feeling is mutual, let me tell you, you that. And you're here today because of your latest book, The, uh, the Poverty of Nations, a sustainable solution that you co-wrote with the other gentleman that's sitting across the table from me, who is also a, a notable person uh, in his own right. Dr. Wayne Grudem is Research Professor of Theology and Biblical Studies at Phoenix Seminary in Arizona, graduated from Harvard, uh, Westminster Cemetery in, uh, let, me, let me try that again, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. I like Westminster. I, I, I didn't mean to call it a cemetery. It's certainly not. And then uh, you got your Ph.D. from Cambridge. Uh, you've authored uh, numerous books, I think around 20, uh, maybe more, uh, m- probably most famously, at least in evangelical circles, you've authored a systematic theology, which I have a copy of at home, uh, used it to help teach a Sunday school class at church. And um, you you wrote this book with uh, with Dr. Asmus, and we're glad, first of all, that you're here today. Thank you for, for coming you, out from Mark. Arizona. Good to be here. Uh, we hope you've brought a little bit of the warmth from Arizona with you, because we've got the sun now. It feels good. We just don't necessarily have the warmth Not of yet. the sun. We're at that point of the year when you walk outside in Michigan, and you could, if you feel warmth on your shoulder, you just stop, and you're just like, oh, oh, it's so marvelous. But I, I, I'll digress from the weather here. <laughs> and let's, uh, let's talk about um, the basic question, and it's a question that we get often here at Acton, based on the nature of our institution. It's a, we talk about theology, and we talk about economics. And there are a lot of people who struggle to understand what do the two have to do with each other? So I'm going to just throw that over to you and say, why, are, are, why, why do we have a, an economist and a theologian deciding to write a book together? I'll start by saying that we, we think 
that uh, Adam Smith's 1776 Wealth of Nations, written 250 years ago, still has amazing information in it. Uh, division of labor, specialization, trade, and, and so on. So it, uh, an unbelievable book. It is a kind of left out the culture and the religion, not that Adam Smith wanted to do that, and have to, he did a little of that in an earlier book, but we wanted to make up for that and say in this book, we're going to explain the free market as best we possibly can so any layman can understand it. In other words, make Adam Smith very, very understandable, and then we want to add the the, the religion, uh, what, what a big difference it makes in the culture and the economic system. I start out uh, looking at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 28, where God tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. I think that means discover the resources of the earth and make them into useful products for human beings to enjoy with thanksgiving to God. So God made us from the very first chapter of the Bible to be economically productive individuals. Uh, using the resources of the earth, to the wonderful resources of the earth, to make amazing products which uh, show forth our creativity and thereby reflect something of the glory of God, the, in the uh, original creator. So uh, economics is something at the foundation of human existence. That's so true, and um, and it's 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 great to see uh, more religious reflection on economics as well, because oftentimes it's it's a discipline that that people just don't think that there's a, a maybe they don't even think there's a moral component to it. Sure, but uh, but it's good to it's good from an, from the perspective of the Acton Institute, it's good to see other people out there doing this work. Yes, and Father Sirico is a great example of that as well, with his approach from Christian theology to understanding what he wrote on when he put he published a book called uh, Defending the Free Market. Uh, which we find ourselves very much in agreement with. Well, that's wonderful. And we, we, we still love that book. We still, uh, we still see it flying off the shelves here at, at the Acton Institute. So that's good. Very readable. People, people who are reading it, and, and it is very readable. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's an important thing for Christians to, to engage with. And, and the reason it's an important thing for Christians to engage with is, is that we're called to care for the poor, and as much as we've made progress around the world in lifting people out of poverty, there are still people who live in really extreme, difficult poverty. And so in your book, um, what you've done is you've, you've taken this title, The Poverty of Nations, which is a play on or, or, or kind of a, a hat tip to Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, that he wrote. And you mentioned that before. And Adam Smith was interested in what makes a nation wealthy. And so your book is the flip side of that, and, and you're looking into what keeps a nation poor. And so I'm going to turn to our economist here, um, Dr. Asmus, and I'm going to ask you, what? In, obviously, you, you've been studying this longer than the time it took to write this book. You've got years looking at economics. What are those factors, uh, either systemic factors or cultural factors, that keep a nation from flourishing? All nations have tried something being so disgusted and disturbed with poverty because poverty is the natural condition 
poverty is. So you go back, you try hunting and gathering, you try subsistence farming, you try uh, uh, slavery, you try uh, feudalism, you try mercantilism, you try uh, communism, you try social, all those isms, none of them seem to be have the ability to raise nations out of poverty. So we're still stuck thousands and thousands of years, no matter which of these systems we try, we are still stuck. Life begins to change in uh, the 18th and 19th century. It begins to change because not only Adam Smith's book of 1776, but people are coming to understand what is it that gets people out of poverty. We thought, and our our nation even to this moment thinks, that foreign aid is going to do it, but helping people to become helpless is not an act of kindness. And so as well-meaning as foreign aid is, it does not lift people out of poverty. In fact, Wayne and I argue in the book that the only thing, the only system that lifts nations out of poverty is uh, free markets. Call it free market capitalism, call it free markets, but the free market is uh, the genius of the free market is that it uh, 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 doesn't compel people to work. The genius of the free market, it, allow, it rewards work uh, by letting people keep the fruits of their labor. And so it is the most unbelievable incentive system that's ever been invented, and that's precisely why the free market works. I want to turn to our theologian, uh, Dr. Grudem, and, and ask you, what insight does Christianity in particular bring uh, to the problems of poverty? Um, are, are, there, are there elements of human nature that hinder people from, hinder people or nations in general from being able to build up a system that brings them out of poverty? And I, I'd also ask, what what sort of things do, does Christianity bring to a table? Bring to the table that would enhance a free market system, or even allow a free market system to operate well. Yes, the uh, the Bible, if we seek it uh, to understand it as a guide for life, has a lot of things to say about economic realities and economic development. Uh, and if you look at the history of the world, those countries that have had Christian influence have been those countries that have developed economically the most rapidly, without exception, except perhaps for Japan. And Japan had a system of Buddhism that made work into a religion, so it it, it, uh, it actually became wealthy, although it did so without the Christian idea of a cycle of work and rest. And so people tended to work themselves to suicide or a breakdown of marriages, and um, it it went too far. But by and large, Christian influence on cultures and societies has led to much more economic productivity. Um, And why is that? Well, um, the Bible values work. Do your work as unto the Lord, as pleasing God and not men, uh, the New Testament says. Uh, It values uh, creativity and usefulness of the earth's resources, as I mentioned a minute ago. It sets up a system of ownership of private property because in the Ten Commandments you have the commandment you shall not steal. I shouldn't steal what you have because it belongs to you and not to me. And uh, private property is a great need of any economic system as opposed to a communist or government-planned economy or a feudalistic economy. When people have private ownership of property, the economy grows. 
emphasis on literacy, being able to read so that people can read the Bible. Uh, and that's something that Christians have taught their children for generations. And when you have literate boys and girls growing up in families, then you have a literate uh, population. That also means that governments are likely to be more accountable to the people because when people can read, they can understand the news and they can talk to each other and communicate. And governments that are not tyrannical but have accountability to the people tend to work for the good of the nation rather than the good of the rulers, and that's a key element. Um, honesty, telling the truth, is immensely valuable in um, business transactions and sustaining the productivity of an economy so people aren't stealing from each other and deceiving each other and having to have multiple checks and, and fraud. Um, and so the Bible is uh, very clear on saying you shall not bear false witness, uh, telling people that they should speak truthfully. So there are multiple factors in a Christian worldview. I could go on. We list 35 of them or 38 of them in the book um, that uh, contribute to economic development. There's a definitely a relationship between following the Bible and nations growing to prosperity. That's interesting, and it, it brings to mind uh, a question just off the cuff here. As, uh, there, there's a deep concern, I think, in the church in America, uh, especially, about the decline of Christianity in the West, the yes. lack of adherence to Christian principles, yes. churches closing, things of that nature. Do either of you uh, have, have, a, have anything to say about that? As we see this process that's gone on in the United States and in, in the West in general, Western Europe and so forth, would we expect to see economic consequences from that? Definitely, and you're starting to see it a lot in Europe already because there's uh, been a more rapid decline of Christian influence in culture and society in Western Europe than, uh, than even in the United States. And what happens is uh, people's internal moral sense of accountability to God for right and wrong, that diminishes, means the ability to trust people in business transactions diminishes, the ability of people to, uh, to um, seek the good of their neighbor as well as themselves in business transactions uh, diminishes, and the uh, tendency of people to depend much more on government and turn over control of their lives to government, give up their economic freedom, increases, and uh, the government takes away more and more people's money and therefore time and therefore freedom, and there will be economic consequences for that. Another demographic situation in Western Europe now is people aren't having children. True. And so the population becomes older and older. People retire, but no, not enough young people coming into the workforce to support them, and that's economic disaster waiting to happen. It's going to happen in Japan as well. It's going to happen in Western Europe. But the Bible has a very positive view of bearing and raising children. The world is going to be hurting in every sense of the word if Christianity goes down. Christianity is one of the only religions of the world that is so uh, uh, progress-prone. So should we save? Indeed we should. Should we invest? Yep. How about work? Yes. Work is good. Work hard. And so every detail after detail that we read through the through the Bible as far as productivity and progress, it's prone. It's positive. It's positive. Most of the other religions go the other way. And they became they become very, very progress resistant. So it is going to be tragic for the United States if we continue to lose church. We continue to lose our love of Christ. 
increased and it, it diminishes and it diminishes, it's going to have a huge effect on the economy. Uh, the only people that don't understand that are economists because somehow they think <laughs> that everything is going to be driven by incentives and the economic system. And Wayne and I argue in this book that culture and religion and the unbelievable things right right off the stick, endowed by our creator with certain enable rights, endowed by our creator, not endowed by government, not endowed by politics, not endowed by wealth, not endowed by uh, abilities. No, no, no. We're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And so right away, we're getting government out of the centerpiece, putting God in. That was the intention of the founding fathers, to put God in the middle of this system. And if he's in the middle of the system, we better be talking about what God would want from us. It's, it's interesting, the, the comment you made about economists who, who tend to not think there's a problem. Just a, a half hour ago, I was flipping through some headlines, and there's a, there is a story about how there was a study done that uh, economists – the headline was something like, economists say economists are great. And, and the, the, story was, <laughs> the story was that there, were, there was a, a, a study done of how different disciplines – respond to the question of whether or not it's good to have an interdisciplinary focus. And by a pretty large amount, I, I wish I could recall the statistics off, my, off the top of my head, but it was a significant amount. Economists were most likely to say, nah, you don't need to have an interdisciplinary approach. Uh, whereas if you go over into the field of psychology or sociology or, or history or any, they're, they're, you're much more likely to say it's very good to have an interdisciplinary approach. It's very good to have an outside perspective. So economists kind of are inwardly focused. It's true. You know, Mark, our book in a way counters that tendency because rather than saying that just one economic fix such as private property or free market or low taxes or something like that will overcome poverty, we are saying poverty is the result of human activity. And human activity is exceptionally complex. In fact, it's motivated not only by economic factors, it's motivated by laws and governments and policies. It's motivated also by cultural beliefs and values in a society. So we end up having 78 or 79 factors that lead a nation to, to uh, overcome poverty and go to increase prosperity. But that's because there are 78 or 79 factors that we could enumerate that affect human behavior. And when an economist just focuses on the dollars and cents, it seems to me to be too narrow a focus. I think you're absolutely right. I want to I want to close this out with with a question. Uh, and and it, we talked about it a little bit before the podcast started here. When I was growing up, when I was a, when I was a child, I, I was raised in the Christian Reformed Church. You know, we're here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the headquarters of the Reformed faith in America. Hurrah! I'm very excited about that. The, but well, I was raised I am in, too. <laughs> that's good to know. I'm glad. I was raised in a CRC church, though, and one of the things that would happen every year at my church is there would be a missions, a world missions and outreach week. And, of course, there would be the big displays that were brought in from the, the denominational headquarters with pictures of, of all the different activities that the church was involved in, that our denomination, the, the missionaries and so forth that were out there. And there would, of course, be the photos of, of uh, villages of Af in Africa, living in people living in what, what to our eyes is just extreme 
extreme poverty yes. and want and, you know, the digging of wells and the various other things yeah. that would go on as a result of that. And one of the things that the children would get is a little uh, cardboard box that we'd get to fold and put together, which was always exciting. But you'd put your pennies and nickels and dimes in there, and you'd contribute to CRWRC, the Christian Reform World Relief Committee. And that was uh, to instill in the children, and, and it was always instilled in the adults of the church as well, the idea that we have a deep responsibility to care yeah. for the poor, which we do. And uh, no one yeah. would ever deny that. I don't think there's any Christian group anywhere that denies that. But I think that the attitude that pre- prevailed at that time, and maybe maybe still does, I'm not sure, was... We have to sustain the poor in their poverty. We have to make sure that even yeah. though these people are poor, they have what they need. Yeah. Here's is, the problem, is, Mark. Yeah, is there a shift to to actually trying to bring people, draw people out of their poverty? What we're saying in this book, Poverty of Nations, and what other publications of the Acton Institute are saying is, yes, charitable gifts, sending food or sending doctors to a poor country, those are good because they meet an urgent need, but they're not solving the problem long term. And the only solution to the problem long term is when the poor country begins to produce enough of its own food. Yes. And when the poor country begins to train enough of its own doctors. So we don't need to send food and doctors to those poor countries because they are self-sufficient. What we're saying in this book, The Poverty of Nations, is that nation after nation throughout history has done that. And it can be done if governments and economic systems and cultural beliefs will set people free to be creative and productive and enjoy the fruits of their labors. It seems to me as a theology and biblical studies professor that this is consistent with the teachings of the Bible. Um, Even the poor in Israel had to work to get what they received as help in their poverty. They had to go and pick up the gleanings of the crops that were around the edges of the fields that had been left for them. And when Israel came into the promised land, God didn't promise them that they would be wealthy because nations would send them donations year after year. God promised them fields of uh, olive trees and vineyards, which they would have to tend and harvest, hills filled with copper and iron, which they would have to dig out and refine. In other words, God's blessing of prosperity for the people of Israel would come through productive work. There is no thought in the Bible that poor people or poor nations should ever become dependent perpetually on donations from others, Um, but that the solution to poverty is productivity, and God has given us an earth that enables us to be productive, and he's given us the work and the creativity and the ability to be productive. Nations just need to, national leaders in poor countries just need to release their people, set them free to become the productive individuals on the earth that God intended them to be. Aid looks so good, feels so good, sounds so good, but the end result is helping people to become helpless is not an act of kindness. People do not need a hand out as much as they need a hand up. They need trade, not aid. And so uh, the churches are well-meaning in what they do, but in many senses, they, they, in their helping, it really hurts. It's it's so true that we and we, we've talked about that subject so much here in the Acton Institute between the poverty cure and issue. We have an entire documentary about it now with Poverty Inc. And I can hear the folks uh, from the Poverty Inc. crew kind of just silently giving you a round of applause for this and and this book. And I think the subtitle of your book is important too: a sustainable solution. Uh, it's not just a. We're not talking band aids. We're not talking temporary help and emergency help. We're talking about changing 
the culture and building something long-term? The solution we are proposing, and I think the Acton Institute is proposing for poverty, is far different than what has been proposed by Ron Sider in his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. The subtitle of Ron Sider's book that has been so influential in the evangelical world in the last 30 years, the subtitle of Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger is Moving from Affluence to Generosity. And that subtitle reveals what he thinks of the problem. He thinks the problem is affluence, too many rich people in the world. And the solution is generosity, rich people giving more of their money. And we're saying the problem is not affluence. It's not that there are rich people in the world. The problem is that there are poor people in the world. And the question is how to solve poverty. And the solution is not generosity, us giving more and more and more to them. The question is how to enable them, encourage them, and help them to become productive so that they move to affluence. Absolutely. And, and, and I want to emphasize, too, when, I, I don't think that you would um, would say that in any way to criticize the motives behind no, Ron Sider's. No, good-hearted motive. Well-intended. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a discussion that has to be had about the, the proper technique to achieve what we all want. Right. And uh, don't get us wrong. We're not saying it's wrong to meet cases of urgent need. Absolutely. Where people are hungry, they need food. Where they're sick, they need medical care. But we're saying, what is the long-term solution to the problem? That's nations becoming productive and producing their own prosperity. And they have done it throughout history. They're doing it even in this generation. Uh, South Korea in the 1950s was poorer than almost every country in Africa. Now South Korea is the 12th richest country in the world, and it's done so by producing cars, TVs, microwaves, and other products. Chile moved from being a poor Latin American country to it's going to become the wealthiest country in Latin America very soon by exporting fruit and vegetables. Uh, growing fruit and vegetables for export. And in spite of the um, wrongs that were done by a number of governments in Chile, they've moved to much more of a free market system that enables people to keep the fruits of their own labor, and they've become much more productive. I think uh, you've written a very helpful book here. It's an important book. It's a discussion that Christians need to engage in, and this is going to be a great tool to help people do that. Um, Dr. Wayne Grudem, Dr. Barry Asmus, it's a pleasure to have you here at Acton. We're looking forward to your lecture, and uh, I want to I thank you for taking the time to talk to us on Radio Free Acton today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Mark again. Um, thanks so much for listening, even though we're not here in studio this week. Big thanks to Wayne Grudem and to Barry Asmus for taking the time to sit down in studio with me a little bit back and talk about their book. Uh, Again, the title is The Poverty of Nations, uh, A Solution, and it's available at Amazon.com and all your other online booksellers as well. Thanks to them. Uh, It was a great conversation, and I appreciate their time. We'll post the video of their Acton Lecture Series uh, address in the not-too-distant future on uh, the Acton Power blog. So be sure to keep checking out the Power blog at blog.acton.org. And in the meantime, uh, check back soon. We'll be back with more editions of Radio Free Acton as soon as we get everything packed up over at DeVos Place and, uh, and get moved back to the Acton building. Hope you're having a great summer, everybody. We'll talk to you later. Bye.